So King directed the speaking to Sukadeva Goswami about how the Yamadutas were surprised that Yamaraj had been baffled because they could not execute his order. Someone above Yamaraj had stepped in and provided Yamaraj's instructions. <coughs> so <coughs> Sukadeva goes from the replies to Cricket's uh, question. Text really. Shi Sukakubacha Bhagavat Purushaya Jan Yamya Padi Vito Maha Patin Vika Bayam Ashur Dimam Sam Nani Patin Shi Sukadeva Goswami replied My dear King the order carriers of Yamaraj were baffled and defeated by the order carriers of Vishnu, they approached their masters, <coughs> they approached their master, the controller of Samyamani Puri and master of sinful persons to tell him of this incident. Yamaduta Ucho Kati Santiha Shastaro Jivaloka Shavai Prabho Chai Vidyam Kurvataha Kama Aladi Yakti Hintavaha Yamaduta said our dear Lord, how many controllers or rulers are there in this material world? How many causes are responsible for manifesting the various results of activities performed under the three modes of material nature? Sattva-guna, Rajaguna and Tamaguna. Report by Swami Grace A.C. Shri Vishwanath Chakravarti the Course says that the Yamadutas, the order carriers of Yamaraj, were so disappointed that they asked their master almost in great anger whether there were many masters other than him. Furthermore, because the Yamadudas had been defeated and their master could not protect them, they were inclined to say that there was no need to serve such a master. If a servant cannot carry out the orders of his master without being defeated, what is the use of serving such a powerless master? So, um, here the Sukadeva Goswami is replying uh, 
to the question of kinkuruhi, with this discussion uh, as to the questions asked by the Yamadudas to Yamaraj and the answers, answers that he gave. So the Yamadudas, they're asking these questions that how many controllers or rulers are there in the material world? And how many causes are responsible for the results of activities performed under the three modes of material nature? So this is a very, very good question. Uh, so the questions of the ambiguities, they have a very, although the servants, their, their servants have a very powerful personality in the Amaraj. And so they understand that the activities that they're performing are very, very significant, although they themselves are just humble servants. But even, even as humble servants, uh, their question is very intelligent. And you would expect that, that even the servants of very significant personalities themselves become uh, somewhat qualified. As explained uh, several times in the Bhagavad Gita, in order to serve a particular person, one has to qualify like that person they're serving to some degree or another. And they, they have to have some concept of the service that they're doing, the significance of it. So, um, and this is, this is a very natural question and a very intelligent one. So, what is surprising, uh, these questions are being asked because, in general, we never ask them. It's a question uh, that we may go through our entire life and never ask this question. So, uh, through the Bhagavatam, of course when we hear this question, we want to know the answer. We would never think about asking this question, but then when you hear the question, then it's a good question, what is the answer? So generally, um, This concept, or say, um, you know, because we don't know so many things in this world, about this world, about its cause, who's in control of this you know, world on a material or spiritual platform, we just uh, plot along uh, with blindfolds on and just except that we don't know, and we just take it that it appears that there are probably many different uh, controllers. Uh, some, <coughs> one person is controlling something, they may have a greater control over them, and therefore there are many different controllers. So, <coughs> in this world, uh, if someone is born in a particular town, a particular village or a particular province, 
Um, if there is a particular controller of something, and that particular controller is being worshipped by everyone, then generation after generation, they will worship that particular controller. So, um, you know, if someone's in a um, if someone's in a, you know, somewhere even in South America, and there's particular gods, and particular gods are being worshipped, and they demand human sacrifices. These things sometimes happen. And, uh, go out, and kill so many people, and bring them back to the sacrifice. That will do that generation after. And uh, <clears throat> your understanding will be that if we do this particular type of worship, their crops will grow, the rain will come. Or someone is thinking that uh, you know, we like to uh, drink a certain amount of uh, intoxicating beverages, and that is the great pleasure of our life. If we worship uh, if we worship that particular demigoddess, we will always have a good supply of intoxicating beverages and enjoy ourselves in that particular way. Because that particular controller controls those aspects, uh, we will worship that particular demigodius generation after generation. So if we have a, a particular interest, um, as long as that interest is being met, we will worship that particular deity. Um, now sometimes the problem comes that we have a particular interest where cow towering, as Prabhupada says, to some big gun somewhere, either demigod or uh, you know, some big uh, you know, leader of uh, men and nations in this world. And what happens, so well, we're following some ideology or nationalism, because today is all about nationalism. Prabhupada mentions actually the Vedas, the concept of nationalism is not there. They don't encourage nationalism. Today's Australian day, we love Australia. We love, we love actually people from all over the world, but also we love people in Russia, we love people in China, we love people in every country actually. Um, <coughs> But still, so what happens uh, is that people may worship a particular country, this is the greatest country in the world. All of a sudden, <coughs> the leaders in that country are now not you know, supplying the uh, particular level of uh, happiness that they wanted, and therefore they reject that uh, national sentiment or that particular leader. And similarly, as Prabhupada mentions during the uh, World War, uh, his Prabhupada, uh, he had association with um, uh, different personalities. Uh, you know, when he was traveling around India, he 
uh, had actually, uh, you know, uh, fought in the war, you know, seen so many different things in the wars, and uh, yeah, people told him different things. And um, one of the things was that many of the women in Germany, uh, they prayed to God that their sons, husbands, and fathers will come, come home safely from the war. And then, when they didn't come home, literally the majority of them were killed, uh, then they stopped worshiping God. So, uh, so there's, you know, there's that tendency there. But what you don't find is, you know, a lot of people asking even this one question in the whole course of their life, that why we're worshipping this particular deity and why this particular need that we're worshipping, you know, this particular deity, it means that we don't look at other controlling personalities in this world. So, um, Prabhupada mentions, so for instance, um, in India, where you know, the Brahmins or the priestly class, if someone comes to them and says, you know, the particular, in our village, we worship Krishna, and my mother, her mother, grandparents like that, we worship Krishna, uh, can you guide us in the worship of Krishna? So the Brahmanas, uh, you know, they will give some mantra and something, yes, now you are, and do this and do that. Same Brahman, someone comes and says, you know, we worship Kali, uh, this has been our tradition, can you guide us to worship Kali? Yes, here's some mantra, this, here's some process, you do that. If someone else comes to the same Brahman, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in our tradition we worship this particular, you know, Kali Bhairava, uh, you know, and they're very ferocious, uh, you know, then here's some particular mantra like that. Same Brahman. So the Brahman is just doing good business. So it doesn't matter who is coming uh, and what, what they want, they will give some mantra, yes, here it is, it's various, like this. Now, as far as the Brahmins are concerned, it's good business, but also as far as the Brahmins are concerned, that there does appear to be just many different controlling personalities and uh, one's as good as another. And uh, who am I, you know, to say that, you know, they're worshipping such and such a person in this particular province. They're worshipping such and such a person in this particular province. <coughs> Who am I to make judgments that one is, uh, you know, should be worshipped and one should not? So they're just, uh, you know, peddling their mantras uh, to, and, and their processes to everyone that comes. So Prabhupada mentions, you know. Uh, therefore, you get this tendency where, uh, especially you know, these days, the Brahmins don't really explain anything. So if you go there for a particular ritual, or, 
or for particular... Um, it, it, and when we talk about Brahmins, we're also talking about, even if you go within Christianity, Muslim religion, even Buddhism, so many different things, uh, that the explanations are less and less. And that is because if they give an explanation, they're going to come across people with so many different opinions and it will make them very unpopular. So, you know, as a, as a priest, these days, if someone gives an opinion, then you become very unpopular because you find that there are few people who will accept that, yes, worship in this way, you know, these are values, and if this is not so good, as soon as you make a judgment in one way or another, materially or spiritually, you, you will not get so many problems. And therefore they don't explain so many things, they just happen to give some mantra, do some ritual, and uh, you know, give their blessings like that, and allow people, and therefore, uh, but also, the Brahmins or the priests don't know because they're just as confused as the uh, followers as to, you know, are there just many different, uh, you know, uh, controllers, many different causes, like that. So you have this situation in the world, the people are not asking, and those who are supposed to have the answers don't have the answers and are not giving any answers even if you ask because it's not good for business. So, uh, so you know, when I, when I first joined the Hare Krishna movement, uh, you know, we had uh, a few Indian devotees, especially in part of the world where I was, you know, in the Western world, in Australia, and, um, New Zealand. You know, there might have been one Indian devotee one of the was a couple, I just remember a few, one or two. And, um, but I, I used to think, uh, <coughs> being born in Australia was a very unfortunate situation because I have such a little understanding of the culture. I just seem to be an outsider. That's that I always felt that I just seem to be an outsider. If I had been born in India, I might have had a better chance of being a good devotee like that. <laughs> it's like because when you you know naturally you see the devotees, you, know, you know they just have that advantage because from that part of the world. As time has gone by, I've understood actually I had the advantage. <laughs> No doubt about it. No doubt about it. It took me a while to realize it. But um, it is from talking to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different people from different uh, backgrounds, both Hindu, Christian, this, that, and the other, that you understand that, that the situation is exactly like that. That people don't care who is the supreme controller. They just don't care. 
And the general consensus is, is that, you know, there just appears to be a whole random bunch of different controllers throughout the universe and in the world. Pick one that satisfies your needs and it's as good as anything else. And that's just the status quo situation. So, now, when I, um, I took an interest in the, um, the Hare Krishna movement because I was actually, I was interested because as a little child, I used to think to myself, uh, even when I was you know, seven, I remember laying in bed thinking, you know, what will happen when I die? Do I keep living or do I not? <laughs> you know, it's a thought that comes. And most children, you know, will think, they'll think, what happens if my mum and dad die? Or grandpa and grandpa, where do they go? Is that the end? And then they have those. So then, you know, those questions sort of, they're there. Of course, I actually wanted to know. I was always very interested. Um, you know, you read different books, they sort of, you know, they're interesting, but uh, no one seems to ever answer those questions, and no one seems to be asking them. Uh, then I found the Bhagavad Gita, and you can see that there is encouraging you literally to ask those questions, and you will get the answer, and you get the answer from the Bhagavad Gita. And it's there in the Vedas, but the, the Bhagavad Gita is pointing to that uh, knowledge uh, because generally people who are studying the Vedas, again, are studying the Vedas in order to facilitate some particular thing that they want in this material world. You know, they want wealth, they want a you know, good husband, wife, they want to go to heaven, they just want to maybe live a good life, a pious life. You know, sinful, some of these different things, but the real philosophical questions people ask, but in the Bhagavad Gita, it encourages one, because when you think about it, if you don't die when this body is finished, how is it possible that you're living forever? You know, if that's the case, and, you know, there's always a, this suspicion in the back of your mind that somehow or another I don't seem to change but I keep witnessing my own body <laughs> growing and changing but I don't seem to change as a person but, you know, so there seems to be some, you know, even as a child you can sort of see, you know, the body's more like a machine, it, it, it keeps changing, but I'm more like the witness, something in the body, you know, seeing the changes, and you know, eventually I'll have an old body, and eventually the body will go, but it seems like if I'm unchanged, maybe I don't change at death as well, so, you know, that, that concept which is there in the Gita, even as a child, you sort of think like that. So if I'm something that's unchanging, you know, the body's, you know, somewhere this unchanging entity, what happens to me then? Do I actually take into the body? And then of course you hear concepts of reincarnation, that there is this changeless uh, nature. But 
it gives, you know, there's this um, sense that there's something that exists which is permanent. So many things are impermanent, there must be something that's permanent and I appear to be one of them. Or I'd like to be one of them. <laughs> I'd like to be a permanent feature of eternal existence. I don't want to die, I don't want to just snuff out and I'm gone. So, uh, so those questions are there. That <clears throat> there appears to be something uh, which is uh, permanent. What is that permanent thing from which all the temporary things, everything, and within the course of, you know, even if there are demigods and, and some, you know, where did they come from? You know, they're part of this uh, cosmic manifestation. You hear about so many different cultures as you're growing up as a child. You know, Roman gods, and, you know, gods from you know, the Aztecs, and like this and what have you. And you understand that also, <coughs> that um, you know, they're part of this, they're like us, except perhaps a little bit more powerful, but really, you know, we're all within this material universe. There's some unchanging spiritual aspect to our nature. Uh, and uh, perhaps we can become demigods. Perhaps the demigods don't stay demigods forever. So all these different questions. So <clears throat> there appears to be something which is permanent. And that permanent thing is literally what everything else rests upon, comes from. It, it, and because it's permanent, it's actually more real than the things that come and go. If something is permanent, it appears to be something that's real, and things that keep coming and going appear to be something that's not real, because once they're gone, they never come back again. We know, you know, people in this world, when they leave it, you know, these bodies, once these bodies are finished, unless you watch the zombie movie, they just don't come back. You know, ever. They've gone forever. And, and, and therefore there's a sense that really the existence is so temporary that it's practically insignificant. It's not really part of reality. So these, these, these are questions that, uh, you know, even a child could have. I know that because I had them, you know, as a child. But no one asked. But when I found the Gita, the Gita actually explains that actually the entire, what is called the absolute truth, where you take everything that is possible to be in existence, both the temporary and the eternal, that is called the absolute truth, and that is eternal and complete. Never, it, 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 it's, it, um, it's not, it's something that was eternally there, and eternally will be there, and it is eternally complete. And that we are a little particle of that, and our existence, we are eternally a part of that complete whole. So that is an eternal truth, we can understand. So we're not the complete everything, but we are eternally 
part of the complete whole. The complete whole exists forever. Even the scientists, if you ask them, before the Big Bang, there's obviously this energy which is, you know, grouped and, you know, created this so-called Big Bang. The universe has expanded by this massive surge of energy has caused the, the, all the universes, etc., to expand. And you ask them, that energy of which all the cosmos is made of, where did it come from? They say it was always there. There's no other explanation. It is so illogical, and that's, that's of course the flaw in Buddhism, that you cannot get something from nothing. If in the beginning there was nothing, then you can never get something from it because there's nothing there. It's, it's how can anything expand into nothingness? Well, the thing is, there never was nothing because if there's nothing... That's my point. What's that? That's my point. Hey, can, if there's something in the beginning, it must have always been there. It's always been there, it's eternal. Therefore, it doesn't become nothing and it didn't come from nothing and it's not nothing in between. So, you know, and even when you're thinking of yourself, if, you know, if you're thinking that, okay, if my body finishes and I keep existing, I must have always been there. Like that. Isn't it? If I'm sort of always just somehow existing, that I'm different from anything material, different from anything in this material world, I seem to be an unchanging entity that will exist even past the death of this body. That means I've always been there, and always will be. So, <clears throat> and if I'm like that, so many others are like that. So then, then the question comes, so I have some consciousness, I have some uh, little understanding of uh, things in this world, but there appears to be a supreme consciousness as well. And that supreme consciousness appears to have always been there as well. If I'm conscious, I'm a living being, and I appear to be, there's no cause for me, just always been there, eternally, because you, as we said, you can't get something from nothing. So if I'm separate from any material element, different from the material body, and I exist even when the material body is not there, so I've always existed on that platform as something that can change bodies, but never disappears, just eternally exists, and always conscious of the different bodies, and sometimes may not have a body, but still existing. If I had that quality, and there appears to be a supreme intelligence, then that supreme intelligence has the same qualities. So that supreme intelligence, or that supreme consciousness, has always existed as well. So, uh, one of the, of course, you know, when you look at the universe, An ordinary person can understand 
that it's something you know quite phenomenal that doesn't appear to be just a random accident, accident and it's just filled with chaos and darkness. If you look at the universe, you can see that everything is precisely in a particular way for a particular reason. There's creation, and creation has this always this perfect plan. So, you know, humans generally have children, and when they have children, they have another human. They don't have a sheep, they don't have an elephant, they don't have a fish. Fish have children, they always have a fish. You know, everything is just not chaotic, but following particular rules. The sun rises in a particular way, and for the sun to change its, uh, so if its distance from Earth was the slightest little fraction different, then light wouldn't exist on Earth as we know it because just that slight difference would make it too cold or too hot for, you know, for things to exist as we know So the sun is in a precise place. It's precisely placed and it's precisely placed also to accommodate different seasonal changes which are also very, very important because the and also, within this world, we see there is creation, and then when things are created, there is an arrangement so everything is maintained. You don't see one creature of all the different 8,400,000 different species of life where they're created and they don't have a food source. It's there. Why isn't creation like that? There's so many different living units are created. Oh, they created no food for them. There's no facility in this universe for them. And the interesting thing about the universe is that every single creature that is created has its specific requirements for food, and it is, and, and that particular type of nutrient, or you know. Foodstuffs, it has within its body the particular ability to digest that food. So imagine if a living entity is born, its food source is not there, or its food source is there and it has a different type of digestion. Or the food's there, it has the digestion, but it can't get its food. It's got nothing to grab hold of it. But every living entity has its ability to uh, digest a particular type of food. That particular type of food is available, and it has a unique ability, an ingenious ability, not like something haphazard, but this uh, you know miraculous ability to attain that particular type of food continually. So, you know, you look at the universe and there are so many different things and you think, this is not accidental. So one, one of the things, again, as, as a child, 
One of the things I always did, I used to love nature shows. Absolutely love them. You know, because it fascinated me, the web of life. It was the web of life. It was the way everything fitted in. That each and every species. Now, this is another interesting aspect of it. Not only is each individual species able to digest its food, get its food, and its food is available without living in, that living entity is part of a whole, uh, let's say, web of life, or circle of life, where it is important to every other species, and every other species is important to every other species that existing. So they're not just existing individually, but they're existing as a uniform combination, and you disturb that combination in any way, and you have trouble. <laughs> so when you, so, you know, when I was a young child, I used to watch nature shows, and I was absolutely fascinated by that concept how everything is actually in this um, you know, perfectional state. There's nothing chaotic about it. It's like, you know, the more you hear it, the more it's just amazing. Yes, that, of course that fits in. Of course this living in is necessary. Just like in uh, Canada, they, um, you know, at one stage, they, they decided that the wolves in the forest, in the national parks, were bad for the tourists. So they decided to, you know, they thought, well, you know, well, wolves have no real place in the world, uh, especially in the tourist park. We don't need them. We can't send a value to them. We'll just get rid of them. Their superior intelligence, they thought like that. Of course, these you know, the scientific minds of the world. certainly um, goaded on by their financial you know, desires, more money, less, less wolves, more money, more tourists, they'd be happy. So they got rid of the wolves, and what they found was that the fish in the river started dying. <laughs> and Many of the trees also started showing signs of disease. And the moose and different animals like that also started showing signs of disease. And then they were, they were, and, and, and were reproducing a poor quality of uh, you know, animal. So then they researched, you know, I wonder if the wolves had anything to do with this. <laughs> because everything was going fine before that and all of a sudden there's no wolves we've got problems. So when they looked at it, they found that um, the, the wolves, of course, you know, being apex predators, uh, they have, according to the perfect arrangement of the world, the ability to sense that among the, the prey, so the moose or deer or what have you, if some are ill or slightly diseased or defective, they can pick them out from miles away and target them 
and they're the ones that I kill. And of course, what that ensures is that the population of animals that are reproducing are always the prime animals. And when that stops, then they actually start reproducing also more of the uh, disease, the ill ones. And the other thing was, is that because the wolves weren't there, the population of moose, etc., and deer, you know, went through the roof a bit because there's no wolves coming, as they were. And so they have a tendency to sort of eat some of the bark, but, you know, a little bit. Most of them eat some of the leaves around the trees. But when they were, because there was more population, once they'd eaten, you know, the particular leaves, and they did start eating the bark of the trees, eating it so much that it actually caused uh, problems with the, the trees. And uh, that problem with the trees, uh, you know, caused a problem with the soil. Uh, and that problem with the soil ran off into the rivers, and that started killing the fish. So, um, anyway, the point is, as a child, I used to watch those shows because I was fascinated that there's this wonderful design, uh, you know, this, we're in a creation, but we're in a perfect creation. And, because we understand, you know, from Santa Yoga, there are 24 elements, and those 24 elements create all this. The sun, the moon, the planets, all the different species of life, 24 elements. It's not as if, oh, we need more elements. No, it's just enough. 24, exactly, exactly 24. That's it, perfect. You got that? You do it. So, uh, you know, if I was playing football with my friends, uh, we'd do anything to get out and kick the ball. And, uh, my mum would come out and say, Danny, she's called. Danny, there's a nature show. I'd just say, see you later, guys. A straight inside. Wouldn't matter if it was a weekend, weekdays, the mother would say, Danny, there's a nature show on. I'd just drop everything. Run. That's so fascinating. So, you know, that's why, because um, I would ask the question, there appears to be and intelligence behind the universe. This, there's a design, uh, and the, you know, uh, there, there appears to be like a supreme conscious being who, if they're conscious, but supremely conscious, they were always there as well. And the elements that they used to create this material world were always there as well. The manifestation comes and goes, but it appears that everything is somehow there. So that everything that we see in the whole of creation seems to be coming from and controlled by, you know, one supreme intelligence. And that, that was one of the things that led me to, you know, become an astrologer. Because as I got to about 15, you know, 
reading through the newspaper and seeing about astrology, I asked the question. This astrology seems to be in many cultures, they have some ability to sort of, you know, look at the stars and the planets, and actually there seems to be like a language that someone is, that can speak to us about our destiny. You know, which is another whole concept that actually someone can see our past, someone can see our future, and not only see it, but perhaps uh, in control of it. So I looked into astrology, does it work? Is there something written there that I can read? And is there something written there that actually tells me accurately about my past, my current situation and my future and gives me some uh, understanding of whether I can change my activities in any way to uh, adjust things. Are, are things set in stone that this will happen? Or is that you know supreme intelligence uh, able to give some sort of uh, free will where you can actually change things? Uh, you know, if there's uh, some supreme intelligence is that supreme intelligence controlling every single thing I do for all eternity? If everything's being controlled, do I have any control? Who is that supreme person? Can I know them? Can I connect with them? Because, you know, again, you think, if, um, if that supreme intelligence if you, if you can actually connect with them, or sometimes I used to think, you know, because at one stage I read this book from India, it's by Dr. Brunson or something. He's a German fellow. And he said there that the, uh, so I was only about 15 or something, but he said that actually we are, there is a super soul and we are that person, we meditate, we will realise that we're that person. Right? A very interesting thing happened, is that after reading that, I had this strange dream. But I was sitting in a bath on a sunny day on the beach. And I had a little shower coming over me, I was in my bathroom, a little shower coming over and this beautiful, just nice cool water was coming down, it was a beautiful sunny day, and I was just, I was only one on the beach, I was looking out over the sun, and the, it was just so relaxing, just sitting in that bath, the only one on the beach, beautiful sunny day, and that nice cool water just coming down, and I was just, just relaxing like that, I thought, oh, this, this should never end. What happened was, while I'm sitting there, the sun started going down in the sky and the change the temperature started getting cooler. And I thought, so I thought to myself in this dream, probably because I've been reading this book, I wonder if I can make the sun go back up in the sky. If I'm one with the Supreme. And in my dream, the sun went back up in the sky. <laughs> So, and then, so I stayed in my bath, and, you know, just relaxing, and then gradually the sun went down. I said, no, I should go back, and it went back up. 
So when I woke up, I was thinking that perhaps I can become, perhaps I am, perhaps we're all one, you know. So it's very, you know, Maya really, really tested. Of course, Maya was actually very helpful because um, she later smashed the hell out of me, so that I had no doubt at all that I really wasn't, you know, in control of anything. So, so just to have that thought, material energy thought, that's very offensive, and uh, I'm going to punish you just for thinking like that. And uh, she smashed me really good. And why is it difficult? And then I understood. Therefore, when I actually come across the Gita, and it said, you are not the Supreme, because you don't have, you know, the Supreme is full of unlimited knowledge that can never be, it's so unlimited and so complete, it can never be covered where it forgets itself as being Supreme. It's eternally Supreme in that consciousness, but we're a tiny little spark of in the same quality as the Supreme, Satchitananda, we're eternal, we're full of knowledge, that's literally part of our very essence. Is, you know, as Prabhupada says in the Gita, we are consciousness or pure knowledge. Uh, we have consciousness and pure knowledge, and we are consciousness. So both we have consciousness and that pure consciousness and pure knowledge and, and that is eternal and it is literally ourself, we are that pure consciousness and pure knowledge. But just in a minute level, and but we do have an eternal relationship with the Supreme Soul. And of course the Bhagavad Gita points out that in all the Vedas you will not find anywhere in the Vedas where it says that ancient India is a place of Hinduism where they believe in many gods. In fact, the very, you know, even Hinduism doesn't exist. Uh, you know, it, 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 Hinduism is a, um, a, a term applied by the Muslims. But the people on the other side of the Sindhu River Indus, because they didn't say the S so much. So the Sindhus become the Hindus become the Hindus, like that. So it was a term applied, and Hindus accepted there are many gods. But actually, those who followed the scriptures of ancient India accepted. Strictly, there is one supreme cause of everything. Uh, and that <coughs> that person is Krishna. So that is stated. Uh, now, if in this course of this lifetime, therefore we can understand that my eternal identity is not this body, Therefore, I have nothing to do with nationalism of where the body was born. That, that, that's a, you know, nationalism means oh, my body was born in here. Well, I'm not even this body. 
and I'll be probably being born in so many different parts of the universe. Why in this one life and in my next life, I could be from China, Africa, Iran, wherever. Why accept any one of those as something intr intrinsic with myself? Uh, and um, so, but I am an eternal soul, eternal spiritual conscious being, living being, identical in quality with the Supreme, except he is Supreme, has the same qualities, and therefore my eternal relationship and activities are connected with that Supreme Soul, not with this body and the two. And that Supreme Master, if we, if we serve that Master, He controls everything. So that's, that's a game change, isn't it? Someone says, Who do you serve? I serve so and so, uh, but it's limited because they're controlled by so and so, and they're controlled by so and so, so I have some limited facility. And someone says, Who do you serve? I serve Krishna. Well, what's the difference? You serve this one, I serve that. Yes, but that is the supreme controller of all controllers. He has all facility. There is no control above him. Nothing can impede his will. And if one is in harmony with his will, nothing can impede one, oneself. So it's a game changer. It's a very important concept. And um, again, reading the Gita, because we naturally, as you say, the last snare of Maya is we naturally want to be the control, that's the disease by which we come to this material world. We come to this material world with the desire, whatever I see that I think is mine for enjoyment, I, I am the Lord of that. I will possess it, I will control it, I will uh, you know, exploit it, I will predominate over it. Like that, is, that is the nature of, uh, that is the material disease. But actually, because we're eternal and blissful by nature, we don't have to do anything except exist and we're already blissful and have and are complete. We don't need anything. There's nothing in the material world. We can stay in the material world birth after birth for millions and millions of life and you'll not find one thing in the material world that the soul actually needs for its happiness. To accept or reject, to control or be controlled by it. There's not one thing. The soul is eternal. And the soul is eternally satchitananda, listened by nature. Therefore, within the, you know, all the planetary systems, all the different bodies you can take, there's not one thing in the whole material existence, anywhere, anytime, any place, which the soul actually needs. It doesn't need the body. It doesn't need material existence. It doesn't need to be dictated by the demands of the body. But the disease is, because we identify with the body, just like Arjun at the beginning of Battle of the Crew, etc., he's thinking that 
the circumstances are here. I, I am seeing this according to what satisfies my bodily and mental demands. Arjun was seen like that. Of course, Arjun is Krishna's eternal uh, devotee, but he was put in that position so we could see our position and the solution to that position. And as Arjun saw that, instead of trying to do the impossible and control the material world, with our limited material bodies, even in the bodies of up to Lord Brahma, we can never control it because it's already controlled by the Supreme Controller, who's the source of that energy. So it's an impossible mission. But also, it's a, it's a futile attempt to get happiness from a place where happiness doesn't exist for the soul as well. Futile attempt because it you can, we can never achieve that position of controlling it. And futile attempt because the happiness we want is only a little reflection or a mirage. But the soul, in association with the Supreme Soul, who is unlimited bliss, unlimited knowledge, the Supreme Controller, nothing can uh, thwart his will, his happiness, his desires, if one is in a cooperator in complete harmony with the Supreme and protected by the Supreme, then that is the actual position of happiness. And therefore, Krishna shows that Krishna appeared in this world to show the Vrindavan pastimes. A Vrindavan pastimes means that everyone who has a, it is a, a window to the spiritual that in the spiritual world, every single living entity has a relationship with Krishna, one of his different features or another, and they're all completely eternally blissful, without an un, uh, say, eternal variety of blissful interactions and activities in the spiritual world, in the spiritual body. So, in cooperation with the Supreme, therefore Krishna appeared to show his Vrindavan pastime. That if you're wondering who is the Supreme, forget that, forget your speculations, you know, you may have misunderstood this and misunderstood, here I am. So, therefore, if we look at Krishna's pastimes, if you compare these pastimes, that any other living entity within the history of the world or within any scripture, be it demigod, superpower, or what have you, you cannot find a person who matches the superior position of Krishna in all respects, in beauty, in opulence, in knowledge, in strength, in renunciation and fame, there is no one who can compare. So someone may say, oh, I am worshipping you know, Kali. But you cannot compare Kali or Indra or the Sun God or the Moon God or, you know, uh, this president or that president. You cannot compare anyone or all of them combined. 
If you take all the best persons you can find within the whole history and combine them all together, still they cannot compare to the tiniest little fraction of what is there in Krishna in his, as a person. And, but nor can you find one more lovable and loving. And that eternal relationship between the soul and the Supreme Soul is an eternal, intimate relationship. So we don't have to create that. It's eternally there. We just have to remember it. So we don't have to sort of go out and do something extraneous or add something to us. Or the Supreme Lord is there. We're eternally there. Our relationship is eternally there. And the only thing that's happened is we've just gone into a sleep of ignorance and just forgotten all about it. And as soon as we remember that, and then the process, the process of remembrance is that these different literatures, Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Taranvita, these different scriptural references which are point us specifically how to always stay in contact with the Supreme by remembering the Supreme. If we, it's mentioned in the Vedas, one who constantly remembers the Supreme attains an intimate relationship with that Supreme and is brought and becomes eternally in association with that Supreme. So that's so here is the, the most mystical, um, wonderful um, aspect of eternal life and how difficult it is to reach out and get it. If we can always remember that Supreme, we are in the association of that Supreme and as the Supreme is eternally blissful, we become blissful. Just like if, if, we're in association, if you're in association with a person and they're actually naturally happy. You know, they're jovial, they're fun-loving, they're positive, and they're like that all the time. You'll become like that. If you associate with people, they're depressed, the world's going to end, there's no reason for living, nothing has a purpose, I can only see black. You know, they, they have songs like that, you know, painted black. I want everything to be black. It's, um, I had a friend actually. I had a friend who painted his room black. And some months later, his girlfriend left him and he committed suicide. But if we go down that track, associate with people uh, like that, we will become uh, also. Morose. Prabhupada used to say, he expected every single devotee to be happy all the time. It's a big ask, but actually Prabhupada expected, if you're a devotee, you should be happy all the time, and that's actually a devotee. And he gives a definition, you know, the devotee, they're able to sit down anywhere, any place, any time, chant Hare Krishna and be happy. He said, what did they ask for? <coughs> it's a little Krishna at the end of it and some service I can do and a little service I can do 
Sita, she didn't care. Uh, you know, she could have said, I'll stay in the kingdom, Ram's going to the forest. No. If I'm with Ram, that is my place. The, the, the difficulties in the forest, that would be my place. The Queen Kunti. Let the trouble, Krishna, you're gone. Oh, let the troubles come again and again. I'd rather the trouble is there, you're going to be there. That is it happens. Okay. So, um, and how is it to, uh, that that position, if we can remember, the Lord says, do you have to go to the Himalayas? Do you have to leave your family? Do you have to go to the forest? No. Stay with your wife, children, husband. Enjoy the company. Stand in your job, live in the country you prefer to live in, live in the house you like to live in. Don't change any of that. It's chant Hare Krishna. If you chant Hare Krishna, it's a very easy way to capture the mind and, and to think of Krishna. Chant Hare Krishna and constantly associate the bodies. You're always discussing with my Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita. Chant. Sometimes you're chanting, sometimes you're he hearing. Uh, Association with bodies. If that gets too much, have to shout. And if you've eaten too much, then go have some more association with bodies, more chanting. That's good. So that is the very blissful. And therefore, in the Gita, Krishna says, this knowledge, which is the innate knowledge of the soul, which is being reminded to us by the Supreme Person of God, Krishna, this knowledge is joyfully performed. So, there's no difference between the life of a devotee and transcendental knowledge. It's the same thing. So, if a devotee is chanting Hare Krishna, associating with devotees, having Vishana, doing a little service, there's no difference between that and pure transcendental knowledge, and there's no difference between that and the association of Krishna. In fact, um, Prabhupada mentions in the Gita, in the second chapter, verses, the last couple of verses, that if a devotee is always engaged in devotional service, they have already attained the spiritual because they're associated with Krishna, and if we're associated with Krishna, where's Krishna? He's always in the spiritual world. So if you associate, if we associate with Krishna, you're in the spiritual world. Isn't it? So if Krishna's always in the spiritual world, and we're, we're with him, just like, um, you know, <coughs> When Krishna wanted to go and see one Brahman, and he also wanted to see one king, and he was surrounded by different devotees and sages, he decided, well, I'll go and see both of them at the same time. So those sages, 
because Krishna went to see those two persons at the same time, and those people were with Krishna, then they were at both places at one time as well. So, if Krishna is completely transcendental to time and space, and he just goes to one province and sees a king in another place to see a Brahmana, and he can do that because he's beyond the material energy, beyond time, the limitations of time, beyond the limitations of time. And you're with Krishna, you uh, go with him on his platform. Okay. So Prabhupada says Krishna consciousness is like this, that if there is a, you know, sometimes you see someone who's riding a bike, and they can only, you know, the legs can only go so fast, but they catch a hold of a bus, or they catch a hold of a train, and they go as fast as that bus. All you've got to do is hang on. So he says, that's, that's like that. Actually, you just hang on to Krishna, and you go with him at his point. That is a mystery. So that it's not up to our you know, particular abilities. And it's not that Krishna is partial to any one particular devotee. That you will you know, experience uh, you know, the kingdom of God even in this world and, be, and feel the presence of Krishna within all your activities, but not this one. No? Prabhupada says it depends, Krishna is not partial. It depends for each devotee that they have different activities which are prescribed for them in Krishna consciousness to chant, take prasad, associate devotees, constantly hear and chant about these topics. If a devotee does those prescribed activities, that's all they have to do. It depends on us just doing that, and if we do that, that person comes to the level of Brahma Sanspasana or the transcendental platform on the same platform that Krishna is on. So it doesn't depend, it's not as if the devotee has to wait on waiting for Krishna's mercy to, to, to advance in Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada says that's not it. It's not as if Krishna is holding back. There are certain activities, and immediately you do them, you're there. And you just hang on to that platform. That's it. Little chanting, like offering a flower to the deity, offering a banana, very little chanting, like that. So, this is uh, um, still what we see is in this world, no one asks these questions. Who is this supreme person? What is the benefit from you know, worshipping the supreme compared to you know, worshipping the local uh, you know, village the deity? You know, they're supplying his plenty of good quality wine and what have you. No one asks those questions. If somehow or another we take the opportunity to ask those questions for people and answer them for people, Krishna becomes so, of, of all the different activities we can do, if we help people to understand the Gita, the, this the information that's there, then Krishna becomes so pleased with that devotee. Prabhupada says, Krishna immediately recognizes that person. So, we do all our prescribed activities, our own sadhana, but more so, and, and 
one becomes the greatest yogi, the greatest jnani, and the greatest devotee. But apart from that, if we actually help other people to become, to understand the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna immediately gives us full recognition. So this is um, some of the uh, questions and the answers, and we're going to discuss all these different things in further detail in this chapter. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.